0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello. Welcome to at and Threat Track for April twenty sixth, two thousand and sixteen. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by John Markley. Welcome, John.
2: Thank you. Good morning, afternoon, or evening.
1: <laughs> and uh, we have John Hogebum here. Yep, here I am, <laughs> and we have Manny Ortiz. Welcome, Manny. Good afternoon. And uh, I'm Brian Rexroad, and we're going to jump right into it. And the first item here is uh, first we're going to talk with you, Manny, about um, I guess infiltrating the bad guys.
0: That's right. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> so this story. Now we didn't do this. No, we did. Okay. <laughs> we're not. We, in we that didn't business. do this, right? No, we didn't. Do this. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is talking about. Um, this goes back to a story from last year. I think back in July, I believe is when um, this fir- this story first broke, which mm-hmm. was the the hacking team. So we won't go into too much about like what they were involved. They they're basically a, a company that you know does. Um, I've heard it called spyware. Mm-hmm. So we'll just leave it at that. Again, so this was back in July uh, 2015. Uh, a, a hacker decided to basically infiltrate and then subsequently release a bunch of information that he had gathered from the hack. And so that exposure basically you know, broke and uh, there was a whole lot of hoopla around it and mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that came out from it. Fast forward to today, this hacker who goes by the handle, and this was a little unclear, so it looks like he goes by, or he, maybe back in July, he went by Phineas Fisher, mm-hmm. and I think now he goes by Hackback um, today. So he decided to post to Paceman the entire details of the actual hack. So, you know, for us geeks that love this kind of stuff, great reading. If you've got time, go out and pull it down because there's some really good detail on exactly what he did. Um, But I'll try to sort of go over sort of the highlights of of Mm -hmm. what he, you know, how he actually went about, you know, doing this actual hack. So he goes into talking about, how he thought originally about the hack, like what he he was going to use to try to infiltrate the group. So the first thing, obviously, I think a lot of people that think about is phishing email, right? Mm -hmm. Most popular way to to do it. But he thought, well, these guys are probably pretty good at doing that. That's maybe some of the the tactics that they use and stuff. So maybe that's not a good way for me to go. So decided to sort of table that. Let's not go that way. Through his uh, evaluation of of what they were using, um, there wasn't anything that real apparent that came to him th- of what he could actually use, mm-hmm. uh, which was good, you know, from a protection standpoint. But obviously, if you're trying to hack them, not so good. So he actually makes a statement in the in the pastebin posting about um, about the sometimes the ease of trying to get into companies, and stated something about you know about that a very good percentage of the Fortune 500 companies already have a compromised asset within mm-hmm. their environment that you could probably go and buy. Let me qualify what good percentage means here. You okay. mean the majority. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. So so as he was going through this, he 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 considered actually three options so once he decided that there wasn't any there wasn't an easy way there wasn't somebody that already had a machine compor- that was compromised within this environment mm-hmm. there were three other ways that he could go so he thought of the first one was a, a zero day in Joomla mm-hmm. a zero day in Postfix or a zero day in a embedded device that they were using within their network. So it sounds like this guy has lots of zero days in his pocket. Exactly. Okay. Or, or you know, had a lot of time to develop them. So mm-hmm. what we'll find out is that he chose the embedded device. Okay. So he ended up going the embedded device route. So he spent the next, it says he spent the next two weeks digging into, the, into the, this embedded device. Mm-hmm. And so he... Found a zero day in this embedded device. Now he doesn't state what this device is Mm -hmm. and what he used to get into this device. Mm -hmm. He's keeping this. But what he did was he used this this zero day to get into the network and then deployed a a back door and then never used that that embedded device again. Mm -hmm. He continued to use his back door, obviously leaving it as a safety net just in case he was discovered, right? that he could still come back in via that because that that's much harder to detect when you have somebody writing something against one of your embedded devices. So mm-hmm. what he ended up doing was once he had this backdoor, he just sat in there and just started to listen in on what was happening. The first thing that he finds is he finds a, a vulnerable MongoDB uh, a database um, that unfortunately was not password protected.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So basically blank password.
3: Um, but this is protected on the inside of their Company a, networks, so
1: to
0: speak. It's Correct. The Not to say that you shouldn't uh, yes. have a password,
3: but people tend to run a little bit
0: looser when they think that right? no when one's they think that they've got some insulation of their perimeter defense. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So that's what he so he ends up finding this. So he's, you know, like as you said, he's already on the inside, so he finds this, he finds this MongoDB da- database. And then from this, he learns where their backup systems are within their environment. So you know, key thing for, for you know, discovery on his end. Mm-hmm. So what he finds from these backups, in particular, what actually caught his attention was that he found the Exchange Mail server backup. And he ends up extracting the BlackBerry Enterprise server. Um, so he finds the admin account password. And so then, basically, what he ends up doing is, is he ends up using this password to escalate his, um, his access on a, a DA server, uh, a domain admin uh, server where he eventually ends up uh, able to extract all of the domain user passwords so now he's got basically a list of all the domain users and all their passwords which is you know great you know when you get to that point so now so now what he's doing is just trying to
1: qualify great here well
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) great in the the sense (laughs) that you know if if i'm you know the hacker yes this is a you know this is a turning point for me right Now he's got access to the email. So now he's reading through the emails. Through reading the emails, he finds out they actually have a hidden network, right? And this hidden network is where they're they're storing the source code for their remote control system, Mm -hmm. um, which is their surveillance software. So obviously, to him, major jackpot to go after that that particular. um, So what he ends up doing is he takes the, uh, the domain credentials that he has. He realizes who the, um, the top coder within the environment is. It's mm-hmm. this guy, Christian Pazzi. I don't know mm-hmm. if that, I'm saying it right. He uses his credentials to basically go in. He basically finds his uh, access to the web interface um, to the, Gitla, uh, the GitLab source code. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's, that was the... Crown jewels of uh, of the hacking team. Mm. So once he has once he has that, he basically has everything that he needed to. And then you know he went subsequently to uh, upload all the email communication that he or he had already pulled back. He'd already pulled mm-hmm. all that stuff back. And then and then obviously unleashed all the other the the code that he had yeah. gotten him to.
1: And just for clarification, Christian Posy didn't do anything wrong here. He, he just n-
0: happened to be the top coder. And, he didn't. Right. Yeah. Although in the posting he does list out all of the domain users and their passwords. Yeah. And I will say, after seeing some of the passwords, they were quite weak. That
1: happens, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So you need a good, but that's yeah. not, that wasn't apparently how he got access to those passwords anyway, right? No. yeah. No. So he had, yeah. he had sort exactly. of an inside track to this. Yep. Well, that's, um, that's an interesting rundown, a pretty good, it, it points out several examples of how enterprises really need to be paying attention First of all, I, I mean, you don't want to be too dependent on the enterprise perimeter. That's just your, that's just a first layer boundary. It Absolutely. doesn't keep the bad guys out. It yep. just keeps them, uh, it, let's say, it, it gives an opportunity for them to show themselves. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, so the enterprise applications and cells have to be protected properly, and then um, the flattening of the network or the uh, ability to get access to the entire enterprise yep. through one credential or access to one domain certainly wouldn't be the best thing. Although you have to really kind of lay out what's what's going to be appropriate or helpful in terms of partitioning that up. Yep. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, if you're going to put all the eggs in one basket, you better protect that basket pretty darn well. Exactly,
0: yeah, yep.
1: yeah. I mean,
3: Anything else, John? I was going to say, I don't know how he transferred the source code and other emails and whatnot that he, he collected but as a defender watching your perimeter yeah, watching and for, for anomalous behaviors yeah. of lots of traffic leaving yeah. all of a sudden
1: or yeah, things to look uh, for yeah you mentioned you that he created a back door that basically protected his is I mean, initial right, yeah he was protector. using a basically probably remote access tool or, and yeah probably some sort it was, of rat, most, it was probably it was all was going right. out through the through the enterprise gateway so probably. that would have been an opportunity and i'm
3: assuming to, he,
0: he probably he probably dribbled it out at first. Mm-hmm. And then once he realized what he had was basically all he needed, he probably at that point just sort of yeah. just jammed we're it just, all.
1: We're just kind of guessing there. But right, exactly. Possibility. exactly. exactly. But, yeah. right. So, yeah. Okay, well, hopefully some folks can learn a lesson and not become the same kind of victim there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the device aspect of it is certainly uh, one, well, we should probably cover something about device security on here every once in a while. Especially the embedded (laughs) devices, yeah. Okay, John John Hogobum, let's go to you here. And uh, this is a topic about, I guess, not (laughs) somebody, we cover an awful lot of attack activity, but it's nice to see a little bit of a protection measure. But let's talk a little bit about how good it is.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how good it is yet and how well adopted it is, but Mm -hmm. the new USB Type C specification, when they first connect, it will. transfer a lot of information about uh, what the capabilities are of this device, mm-hmm. power-wise, you know, because certain USB can be I what it is, like 1.5 volt versus... Five volts. Yeah, and, blah, blah, yeah blah. there's
1: a 12 volt.
3: Yeah, yeah, so there's those different specifications, so they will kind of negotiate with each other before they send power with each other, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing to help prevent frying things. But one of the other, the interesting angle I thought here is that they have some authentication capabilities when you connect the USB device. So it's almost in a way similar to the kind of code signing that you Mm -hmm. would do with software. Um, So when you plug it in, it's gonna exchange uh, almost like an SSL certificate in a way to let them Mm -hmm. know and whether it's signed as a trusted signer. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're in a enterprise, you could uh, configure your machines in your enterprise to say I'm not going to allow people to plug in any USB devices that are not exchanging, not mm-hmm. signed with my company's key. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe I have a trusted signing key and right. I could sign it. I don't know if they really got all implemented out perfectly yet, mm-hmm. but that's the idea behind it. Is that that makes
1: a lot of sense. Um, you know, we've talked about cases in the past where USB sticks try to fake it out and act like a keyboard or right you know, they can claim that they're a keyboard, you'd at least in cases like this or have a make it harder for that type of thing to happen. You'd actually have to, have to defeat the signing process. Right, right. Or at least I'm being a little presumptuous here, but I would expect that that's part of what's covered as a part of it. Right. And we
3: know that USB is also um, one of the many ways that malware gets on machines, mm-hmm. uh, from people sharing keys, going to different places that might be infected, malware gets dropped on mm-hmm. there and then they go stick it into their home computer or work computer. And it gets infected. Mm-hmm. So this could help prevent the spread of malware via
1: USB thumb drives, potentially. Yeah, that's the part I'm, I have a little more of a question about. Because if you have a flaw in the device and are able to inject malware into it, I don't think having a, an authentication process to say this is a known device is necessarily going to protect you from that. But we'll have to see. Right. I, if if perhaps. You could use the sign to say, you know what, um, there might be some way that you could say, okay, this is, I don't know if there's any evidence left behind of where it's been, that perhaps you could see that, okay, this is a company device, and it had been plugged into a non-company system or something like that. Yeah, maybe there is a way
3: to say this thumb drive is You know, company AT&T and this computer's company AT&T, and they can only connect to each other. Yeah, and And if you take it to another machine, it won't actually work. And I think that's the
1: subtlety in all this is that I mean, just um, I think we were just talking about a little while ago in the previous episode about how cryptography really is complicated when you get down to actually applying it and and dealing with all the subtleties that. There are certainly some things that it appears are being addressed here But I'd be really surprised if they're able to address a lot of the scenarios that make USB devices dangerous from right, a security right. standpoint. But,
3: well, it's interesting. At least they're yeah, trying. absolutely. Right? Before oh, they're, I, I'm I not mean, taking
1: away. That. No, no. <laughs> I just want to I, I, what I'm really just trying I'm obviously playing devil's advocate and um, Challenging it a little bit, and you know, we haven't studied all the details of this We don't know exactly what it does and doesn't do but time will tell whether it really is solving a security problem or if other steps in evolution need to take place to make that happen. Right. Absolutely is moving in the correct direction, in my opinion. If you can reduce the number of things that can be faked, you certainly have a better opportunity to do it securely. Right, right. Yep. Yeah. So, good story. Thank you for bringing that. So, uh, John Markley, let's go to you. And, um, you know, I guess uh, you've been studying a little bit about how uh, applications are being updated, and uh, share with us what you've found.
2: Yeah, so I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on each individual uh, topic, you know, on, these, uh, on on app-specific issues, but one of the things that, uh, you know, I do on a day-to-day basis is look at, you know, the security of applications that, you know, we run on mobile devices, and not we personally, but, you know, just generally the we is the world community, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and and the challenge there is is that, those applications have security issues. I mean, they have features and support and you know stability as well as security. But the key here is, is a lot of updates that happen to an app are due to due to security issues. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking, you know, what what is the you know what is the real balance of how people are are actually updating apps. And, you know, we have tools in, you know, to, to manage devices, the, the MDM, the you know, the, the mobile device management software packages that are out there. And there's a plethora of, of, of good ones out there. And, and large enterprises especially need to install those and look at the data to say, okay, there's this new vulnerability with, you know, application XYZ. How many people are subject to it and, and how, you know, how can I help them? Mm-hmm. So, so I did take a look at one of the, the large enterprise, uh, you know, groups here and, and tried to, to narrow down and say what applications are like in that top five, top ten list to, and see, you know, how well are people actually doing updates, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and it's really kind of a fascinating study and it's not easy to do. I'm going to tell everybody real quick, this is not an easy to study to do. No matter how good an MDM is, this is tough to do if you boil it down to just those apps that people install on their devices, you can see, you know, that, that Android app don't get a whole lot. You know, it's about a 50% update to the most current level. Mm-hmm. And it's a little misleading sometimes because, you know, if, if I do a study that says, you know, today application, you know, again, XYZ, if it just got an update, I might tell you that, you know, that everybody who's using it isn't on the current most current level. Well, mm-hmm. it, it's not real accurate if it just happened today. That latest update, right? But but in general, it appears that comparing Apple to Android apps, the Apple people tend to update more frequently. Hmm. And it's 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 kind of interesting. I mean, it's almost a you know it's almost a, a two to one in some ways. Eighty percent to ninety percent to hundred percent of Apple people keep their apps on up to date whereas an android you know you see even in the top you know in this in this example there's there's one one app that's down in the you know below 20% at the most current level
1: mhm perhaps the question is and i haven't done a comparison of this perhaps you have is the uh, apple ios a little more annoying about getting updates put in or is it i mean i am I, I, I said that in a negative way obviously perhaps it's a little more encouraging <laughs> to, put, <laughs> to
2: do the updates any thoughts on that you, you know, there there's something to be said about nagware, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is good and bad. Apple, in my opinion, Apple tends to give you a better view of my apps need to be updated. If you look okay. at your, you know, even most people that I've seen, their main screen on an Apple phone or Apple device, they mm-hmm. have the App Store right there mm-hmm. front and center, and it'll actually give you a little icon that says I have these number of apps to update. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I've not seen similarly with a Google Android phone, a great example of that that same type of of, of visible indication of an update. A lot of times it's in the Notification Center, a lot of times you got to go to Manage Apps uh, under Settings, and and if the app itself doesn't tell you that you need to update, I I think people are just not knowing that uh, the Android apps need to be updated.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's a good possibility. Manny's here nodding his head and saying yes, this well because
0: because that's exactly right. I mean, I think you know whenever whenever I've got my device, i I hate seeing those little bubbles that that have a little number in them right i, I want <laughs> i want to get those things out of the way and <laughs> the only the way to do it is to clear it, them. It, <laughs> the, right yeah, clear them, <laughs> clear them. Yeah. and with my android devices that is actually hidden from me it's usually yeah. in that top left corner mm-hmm. and you have to actually bring that menu down mm-hmm. to actually look at these things that you have to update yep. so it's it's sort of out of sight out of mind yep. so you know apple puts it right in your face and says here it is if you want this bubble to go away you
2: yep. need to update here's
1: living proof of how apple what happens when you have out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So,
2: yeah. okay. So, so I, I do recommend to people, you know, that if, if you're running an Android device, you know, we probably need to do better at educating, mm-hmm. you know, folks on, on how to update and, and when to update. And, and then if you're running an MDM, you know, keep an eye on this. It tells you, you know, maybe where you have a, an opportunity to do some better education.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so and there's security, security
2: things are here. I mean, there are, these are all, almost every one of these apps have had a security vulnerability at one time. Yeah. Oh, they all do.
1: It's just a matter of whether you know about it or not. So, the, I guess the other aspect of this I, that I find kind of interesting, and I, I, so some apps, I happen to be a Twitter user, for example. I, I don't think I go through a week and not have some Twitter update that I have to do in terms of updating the app, it is continuously being updated. I notice it's at say 41% here, whereas compared to, let's take, what is this, a Science Pro calculator or something that happens to be an Apple uh one, but I wonder if that's ever been updated. And right. so, it's, and, and, <laughs> and that's a little misleading. <laughs>
2: right. You're exactly right. That particular instance, I don't think they've had an update since like two thousand fourteen.
1: Right. So it's never been updated. So it's at hundred percent. So it, it's so there's that that it's almost two ends of the spectrum here. I, I I am not as familiar with Pandora, but just to take those examples, that is, what is the sweet spot for an app provider? on how frequently they provide updates so that the users actually do the updates when they're asked to do the updates or they just say, ah, no, not another one of those. I got better things to do. So, it's just a little observation. I'm not suggesting you should have to study that, but it would be perhaps a good study to share with the app creators to help provide them some guidance on what is the right cycle. You know, I think uh, Microsoft has the monthly updates for their operating systems. Oracle still works on a quarterly update, which in my opinion is way too long. Although, you know, for pretty big honking applications, perhaps the application owners, <laughs> you know, we're talking about servers and databases at this point. but. Um, you know, for for folks that are maintaining those applications, perhaps they don't want to be trying to do updates more than quarterly. So, you know, there are a lot of trade-offs involved in this, and um, you know, probably worth studying a little bit. What is the right frequency? Good point. Yeah. So, thank you for bringing that. That's that uh, it, it inspires some uh, some thought beyond the numbers. <laughs> so, you know, this. Uh, this next story here is one that um, I found to be kind of interesting here. It's a, it, it's a paper that was written by uh, Martin Yorgov. I, I have probably butchered his name. I forg- Forgive me for that. And uh, Vitali Shmatikov. And, then, and he's uh, from Cornell Tech. Uh, uh, Martin being an independent researcher. And this is talking about URL shorteners and how they could potentially, inadvertently, I think, compromise security. So the situation here is that most URL shorteners are basically a small shortened domain name, bit.ly being one of them. Google has one. There are a number of organizations that have them. Even private organizations have their own sometimes. And then oftentimes what they'll have is oftentimes is perhaps six characters as a uh, basically a will call it a directory path on the URL that uh, basically provides a unique URL to point to some what would otherwise be a longer URL. And the subtlety here is that sometimes these longer URLs have uniqueness information, maybe a very long string of, of characters that are going to be very difficult to guess. But what ends up happening is when you shorten that down to say six characters of uniqueness, you can scan across all, you know, all the, you can brute force guess those and find out what basically you have it point you to um, these, uh, these longer URLs, which potentially gets you access to things that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. So they used an example. Actually, they had two examples that they worked with. One was actually Microsoft OneDrive, which I don't think this is necessarily any vulnerability associated with Microsoft OneDrive. I think they just used that as an exam- example where they were able to get access to individual's contents by basically guessing these shortened, you know, brute force guessing these shortened URLs, and uh, 7% of what they were able to get access to was even writable. So you could not only uh, have access to the, and view the information, you could potentially change the information. And then, then once you get access to a file and a personal user's drive content, you know, cloud content you could potentially see all of their other content as well by basically traversing up the directory structure. So uh, that's basically the essence of the story here. The other example that they had was, you know, maybe somebody shares directions or maps or something which could give information about, you know, perhaps where they live or where they went to. There would be other sensitive information. And, you know, folks are perhaps not concerned about the you know, the fact that sharing that information, or or that they use the shortened URL basically could expose that information. And um, I'm not sure it's attributable, but in some cases it may be or may not. So, one other thing I wanted to point out in addition to the story is just to consider that there are other hazards associated with shortened URLs. That is, uh, I think enterprises have long recognized that malicious content can be hidden or, you know, a malicious link, I should say, could be hidden by a shortened URL. In fact, they can change the shortened URL to different shortened URLs and still have a point to the same malicious content. And I think my impression has been, because, it, I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of this lately. Perhaps it's still going on profusely, but I, my impression is a lot of the shortened URL providers are kind of looking for the malicious activity and trying to put a damper on that, uh, but you, you know, you, you, that's no guarantee. Right. You're basically depending on the uh, the integrity of that short URL service provider. Nevertheless, uh, interesting uh, paper. Uh, we have the link here, so you can take a look at the details of it. Um, certainly worth reading. Okay, so uh, with that, let's go to you, John Markley, and you'd uh, like to challenge us with the uh, with the quiz.
2: Yeah, let's, let's 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 test your knowledge. Uh, as I as I try to do whenever I write, come on the show, I try to throw something at you that maybe you don't know, or at least you uh, you argue with me on whether I have my fa- my facts right. <laughs> so the, the first uh, the first question here is, is is a history one, and it's uh, it goes back to mobile malware. It's the first identified piece of mobile malware was found on what operating system? And of course, people will argue and debate this, but the first identified uh, you know publicly known, I guess. Uh, what operating system would you all think?
1: Well my, my guess. Go ahead We're going John. On with B Symbian. Symbian. I was gonna say Symbian as well. Manny you're nodding your head.
0: Yeah, I was thinking Symbian. I was looking also at the Palm OS, but
1: yeah, I originally started with Palm, A, but Palm yeah, wasn't that. very network connected. Yeah. That, that really kinda of almost predates the internet or at least the the recognition that mobile devices should be connected and that works. So I was going to go with Symbian. So John Markley, what do you think of our conclusion here?
2: Two thumbs up, guys. Uh, right. Symbian's it. Caber, C-A-B-I-R, was the first uh, recognized uh, piece of mobile malware. It turned in skulls. You may remember skulls where it actually replaced all the little skulls on your screen. Uh, but that's that's the right answer.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Symbian, it, it turned out to be uh, how it was a rampant, Um, target for malware and largely in Asia for, I mean, that was where at at least Symbian was a significant user base for a long, long, uh, I think a longer period of time. And um, so there was a a very, uh, I'll call it a um, incubator for the notion of mobile malware, since the uh, Android and iPhone, you know, iOS, Apple iOS have uh, significantly taken over the market and uh, to a smaller extent, Windows had some piece of that market, so. Okay, uh,
2: next one, John. Yeah, sure, and, and I was gonna point out too that e- Symbian was real scene a lot in the UK as well, quite a bit of Symbian malware there. Uh, so next question, the term, this is the tricky one, I mean, I just warn you. The term broadband best refers to A, any high-speed communications network, B, wireless networking that utilizes multiple channels, C, network connectivity that meets or exceeds gigabit transfers, or D, data communication that requires fiber and other networking components to achieve fast response?
0: Mm. I'm going to go with you, you first. Guessed, she, I'll let Manny go first. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I would, my, I'm, my first tendency is to go with A, just any high-speed communications network. Uh, but the mere fact that John said that it was a tricky question, <laughs> I'm questioning myself yeah, he's, now. <laughs> he's, tra- he's trying to trick you out of your answer. I feel okay, like that I
3: might be wrong too, but I was going to go with A as well. I have to go with A. So what, what do you say? You're I, done?
2: You know, I, sh- I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have tried to fool you. Yeah, it, it, it is a. Uh the <laughs> well, it's you fluffer? You. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's 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 the the problem is is, is of course it's it's high speed is is so subjective and ambiguous. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that is the right answer. All right. Very good. All right. So let, let's let's now test you for sure. I, I don't think I think you guys are gonna get this wrong, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Bluetooth and NFC, so near near field communication, are both short range. What is the typical distance for each? So, A, Bluetooth 10 feet, NFC 10 inches, B, Bluetooth 2 feet, NFC 1 foot, 3, Bluetooth uh, 1 foot, NFC 3 feet, or D, Bluetooth 33 feet, and NFC 8 inches.
1: Yeah, you know, I was looking for the number 17.4 feet. (laughs) But that's not on (laughs) here, so I'm gonna have to pick another choice, and uh, I'll go ahead and go first. I I have to say it's D. D, right? D. I'm going with D, too, because I know I
3: wander way more than 10 feet with my Bluetooth headset. It's probably <laughs> up to 33 that's, feet.
0: That's about how far I can get, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's exactly how I was trying to put it together. It was like, how far do I typically get away from my, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm going to go with D as well.
1: All right. So what do you say, John?
2: Uh, the, the Bluetooth, I should I should have changed the Bluetooth out because you guys are you guys are on track. Uh, NFC, I think would have got you, but uh, it is it is D uh, and 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 NFC eight inches. Reality of it is, is probably it's a lot closer than eight inches, but that's about mm-hmm. the max you can get an NFC. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that, uh, yeah, there, there's probably there there are probably a lot of specifications around the testing scenario that basically s- certifies these things that this is w- one of those parameters and you know, line of sight and you know, certain orientations yeah. of or things or whatever, but nevertheless. All right, well, thank you very much, John. And uh, so that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the at Tech channel, YouTube, as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And I'd like to thank you, John Markley, online for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John Hogaboom. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you, Manny Ortiz. You you. you don't have to be sarcastic. (laughs) Can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Manny Ortiz, for joining us today. I'm Brian Ruxrobe. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe.
0: The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.